0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 2nd edition of the Warcomp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsner, attorney with the Floyd-Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB panel decision ruled that there is no alternative track to dispute a UR determination. Here's what happened in the case of Rosenblum versus Lompoc Unified School District. Marcia Rosenblum worked for the school district in 2008 when she had an admitted right groin and hip injury. In 2019, her PTP submitted an RFA for a right total hip arthroplasty. The RFA was submitted to UR, which timely authorized the right total hip replacement surgery. But the claims administrator notified the PTP that a decision whether to authorize the RFA was deferred pending a medical legal opinion on industrial causation of the osteoarthritis. The Warcomp judge issued a findings of fact and order, finding that the court had no jurisdiction to determine medical treatment authorized by a timely UR. Both parties petitioned for reconsideration. Applicant argued that the work comp judge erred by not enforcing the medical treatment authorized by U.R. and awarding the right hip surgery. The defendant contended that the work comp judge erred by finding the court lacked jurisdiction over the timely U.R. authorization for a right hip arthroplasty. The W.C.A.B. denied the defendant's petition but granted the applicant's and amended the order to reflect that applicant was entitled to the medical treatment authorized by a timely utilization review. It ruled that the defendant attempted to override the timely UR determination and withdraw the authorization. But here the defendant did not dispute liability until three days after the UR had authorized the right total hip replacement surgery. The WCAB said that there is no alternative track under Labor Code 4062 for an employer to dispute a UR determination. When the defendant approved the requested treatment through UR, there was no further dispute as to the necessity of this treatment. An employer may not bypass the UR process and invoke Section 4062, which is the a QME process, and the medical legal review to dispute an employee's treatment request. An Oklahoma judge found that Johnson & Johnson and Janssen Pharmaceuticals, their subsidiary, liable for stoking the opioid crisis in the state of Oklahoma. And it ruled that the company must pay the state million, an amount which was far less than the $17 billion that the state had asked for. This is the first judge to rule in the opioid cases brought to trial by thousands of states and local governments against opioid manufacturers and distributors. This precedent-setting ruling was being closely watched as 2,000 other pending lawsuits await to be heard before a federal judge in Ohio this October. J&J said it plans to appeal the ruling and that the decision was flawed. The Oklahoma Attorney General brought the case to trial for seven weeks, He argued the pharmaceutical company executed an intensive marketing campaign that overwhelmed the market and misled consumers about the addictive risks of the drug. Their trial commenced after resolving claims against OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma in March for $270 million and against Teva Pharmaceuticals in May for $85 million. JNJ and j was the only remaining defendant. And now our crime report. The Mexican Navy in the port of Cardenas discovered 52,000 pounds of fentanyl powder in a mismarked container from a Danish ship arriving from Shanghai, China. The cargo manifest for the 40-foot ocean container stated that the powder content was inorganic calcium chloride, which is commonly used as an electrolyte in sports drinks, beverages, and bottled water. The fentanyl was bound for the Sinaloa Cartel home base in Kalluokan, 300 miles north of the port. If the seizure is confirmed as pharmaceutical-grade fentanyl, It could be pressed into tens of millions of tablets. Drug cartels favor fentanyl or fentanyl precursors imported from China because they can be diluted with fillers and marketed by street dealers as cocaine, heroin, or meth. Fentanyl can also be pressed into pills and sold on the street as oxycodone. The National Institute on Drug Abuse warns that pharmaceutical grade fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than, potent than morphine. Fentanyl is extremely dangerous to handle because as little as 0.25 milligrams absorbed through the skin can be lethal. The fentanyl seizure follows the DEA August 15 announcement of cumulative year 2019 seizures of well over a million illicitly created fentanyl pills by its Phoenix DEA field office. That is nearly triple the pills pills seized a year earlier and over 56 times the fentanyl pills seized in 2016. A Santa Ana man who admitted to his role in a scheme that used fentanyl and other synthetic opioids to manufacture and sell counterfeit pharmaceutical pills designed to look like brand name oxycodone pills was sentenced to 210 months in prison. 22-year-old Wyatt Pasek, who lived in the penthouse of a luxury high-rise in Santa Ana until his arrest, pleaded guilty last November. He used the moniker OxyGod when soliciting cons- customers in online marketplaces and had three prior drug-related arrests. Pasek caused highly toxic drugs to be mixed into counterfeit pharmaceuticals at a clandestine laboratory in a highly populated area, the Newport Beach Peninsula. He sold the drugs in massive quantities for about a year. Pasek and two co-defendants obtained fentanyl through the Internet from Chinese suppliers. They used a pill press to make counterfeit pills and distributed the narcotics to the males, often arranging sales through a dark net marketplace. The other two defendants, 22-year-old Duke Cowell of Orange, And 23-year-old Isaiah Suarez of Newport Beach also pleaded guilty and were sentenced earlier this year to 87 months and 37 months in prison, respectively. At the time of arrest, authorities seized a pill-press lab in Suarez's apartment, along with bags that contained nearly 100,000 counterfeit oxycodone pills and hundreds of bogus Xanax pills, nearly six kilograms of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs, and bundles of cash. Authorities recovered blue pills stamped A215 that resembled 30 milligram oxycodone pills. In the weeks leading up to the arrests, investigators intercepted 20 packages that were being sent to PASSEC's customers. Had federal agents not intercepted these packages, they would have resulted in substantial counterfeit opioids containing fentanyl and fentanyl analogs to be distributed to several states, including California. A physician assistant who practiced at a Fountain Valley clinic was arrested on an 11-count indictment charging him with writing illegal opioid prescriptions, knowing the drugs would be sold on the street. 53-year-old Rife Wadi Iskander of Ladera Beach pleaded not guilty and was released from jail on $100,000 bail. Iskander most recently worked for Coast Pulmonary and Internal Medicine Associates in Fountain Valley, but a spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office said there is no evidence he was selling prescriptions out of that office. In May 2018, the Medical Board of California placed Iskander on five years probation for unprofessional conduct, negligence, and inadequate record-keeping. The board found in the discipline case that he failed to document examinations and diagnostic studies and did not offer any treatment alternatives other than narcotics for three patients. According to the new indictment, Iskander wrote prescriptions for patients he had never met or examined, including an undercover law enforcement officer. Iskander allegedly provided multiple paper prescriptions that he had signed to drug brokers, but with the patient's names left blank to be filled in later by the brokers. Iskander wrote fraudulent oxycodone prescriptions to co Fandants, Johnny Gilbert Alvarez of Santa Ana and Adam Anton Rogero of Costa Mesa, who sold the prescribed drugs on the street as well as to an undercover officer. If convicted of all charges, Iskander would face a statutory maximum sentence of 60 years in federal prison. Alvarez would face a statutory maximum sentence of life in prison and a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years imprisonment. Rogero would face a statutory maximum sentence of 60 years. And in regulatory news, ride-hailing companies Uber and Lyft are threatening to launch a ballot measure if they do not get to rewrite new labor rules dictating who must be treated as an employee in California. The two companies plan to pour $30 million each into a fund for a ballot measure if they do not get their way. Later, gig economy food delivery service DoorDash said it would commit another $30 million to the proposed ballot initiative. The announcements come as the window closes in California to win an exemption from an existing bill that will force employers to treat independent contractors as employees. That legislation... Assembly Bill 5 would codify a California Supreme Court ruling known as the Dynamex case. That case restricts when employers can classify workers as independent contractors and deny them benefits like overtime, sick leave, and minimum wage. The AB 5 author, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, has made it clear she does not intend to give exemptions to the ride hailing companies through the bill. The companies insist that their business model relies on being able to treat employees as independent contractors and that many drivers prefer the flexibility the company offers. Lyft released a study that suggested it would have 300,000 fewer drivers in California if the bill becomes law. And in other news... Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, and its owners, the Sackler family, are offering to settle more than 2,000 open lawsuits against the company for $10 to $12 billion. The potential deal was discussed by Purdue's lawyer at a meeting in Cleveland, according to two people familiar with the mediation. At the Cleveland meeting, the company presented a plan for Purdue to declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy and then restructure into a for-profit public benefit trust. The Purdue lawyers claimed the value of the trust to plaintiffs would include more than $4 billion in drugs that would be provided to cities, counties, and states. Some of the drugs are used to rescue people from overdoses. The in-kind drugs combined with profits from the sale of drugs would add up to a total Purdue settlement of 7 to $8 billion. This trust would exist for at least 10 years and three well-recognized expert trustees would be independently appointed by a bankruptcy court. Those trustees would in turn choose a board of directors to run the trust. Any profits from the sale of produced drugs would go to the cities, counties, and states if they agreed to the settlement. The Sackler family would give up ownership of the company and would no longer be involved. For their part, the Sackler family would pay at least $3 billion out of pocket. Forbes ranks the family as the 19th richest in America, with a fortune of at least $13 billion shared by an estimated 20 family members. The Sackler money would be obtained by the family selling off Munden Pharma, a separate global pharmaceutical company they own. An additional $1.5 billion may be tacked onto the $3 billion if the sale of Mundi Pharma exceeded $3 billion. And in a related follow-up story to the Purdue Settlement Offer, a 2016 Los Angeles Times investigation of their new company, Mundi Pharma, described how the global venture offered a new international pipeline for Purdue's opioids. So, the announcement about the sunlit offer raises questions about the little-known Moody Pharma company reportedly owned by the Sacklers. After decades of stringent narcotics laws, born out of debilitating opium epidemics of centuries past, India is a country now ready to allow opioids to treat the pain of its citizens. For-profit pain clinics are opening by the score across Mumbai, Kolkata, Bangalore, and other cities in this nation of 1.3 billion people. And American pharmaceutical companies, architects of the opioid crisis in the United States and avid hunters of new markets stand at the ready to fuel that demand. Most large Indian hospitals have added pain management as a specialty in recent years. At the insistence of the professional societies that accredit hospitals in India, nurses and doctors now are required to assess pain as a fifth vital sign, along with pulse, temperature, breathing, and blood pressure. And the pharmaceutical industry has kept up with this pace. 20 years ago, only a few pharmaceutical companies marketed pain medicines in India. Today, almost every company is having pain management as a separate division. For Indian cancer patients who once writhed in agony, there are fentanyl patches from a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. For the country's vast army of middle-class office workers racked with back and neck pain, there is buprenorphine from Moody Pharma, a network of companies controlled by the Sackler family. And for the hundreds of millions of aging Indians with aching joints and knees, there are shots of tramadol from Abbott Laboratories. Palliative care advocates who recount stories of patients enduring excruciating cancer pain or dying in agony have persuaded reluctant government officials to allow high-powered opioid painkillers into doctors' offices and on to chemists' shelves. But what began as a populist movement to bring inexpensive Indian-made morphine to the ill has given rise to a pain management industry that promises countless new customers to American pharmaceutical companies facing a government crackdown and mounting lawsuits back here at home. The lure of a pain-free life is a Revelation in a country where incomes are rising for many city dwellers and 300 million to 400 million people are now approaching the middle class. Newly minted pain doctors promise aspiring Indians that life has more to offer in a body free from pain. A looming deluge of addictive painkillers terrifies some Indian medical professionals who are keenly aware that despite government regulations, most drugs are available for petty cash at local chemist shops. The State Compensation Insurance Fund's Board of Directors announced plans to distribute an approximate $105 million dividend to its qualifying policyholders. This dividend equals about 15% of the estimated annual premium reported in State Fund's mid-year 2019 financial statement. State Fund's board will consider dividends again for the remainder of 2019 policy year at its February meeting in 2020. Through July of this year, the state fund is reporting over $662.5 million in premium and over $78.6 million in realized capital gains. Additionally, the state fund has implemented several initiatives over the past few years that have led to improved claims outcomes for injured workers and employers. These efforts, combined with the general improvements in the California Workers' Compensation Insurance Amendment, have led to a significant decrease in the cost of its claims. This early dividend declaration reflects these positive developments. Since its creation in 19. 19- In 2014, the state fund has paid out more than $5 billion in dividends to its policyholders. This is significantly more than any other California workers' compensation carrier over that time frame. State fund policyholders will begin to receive dividend payments during the second half of next year. The practice of determining whether health care is medically necessary for an injured worker has remained relatively unchanged for decades. However, a new report in Property Casualty 360 makes out a case that the utilization review process for workers' compensation claims is ripe for automation. Requests for authorization are submitted. A medical professional compares the requested care against evidence-based guidelines and a determination is issued. The determination is a tool for the treating provider, the claims examiner, and the claimant. Applying the determination during the actual delivery of care is traditionally accomplished by a person, typically a claims examiner or adjuster, or by a medical bill reviewer or auditor. But rarely is it done through technology-enabled automation. Automation can have many touch points in the utilization review work stream. One of the first is the request intake process. Unlike bill review, the Request for Authorization form is not standardized across the United States. Some states have very specific requirements for submitting the RFA, whereas other states offer little or no guidance on the form submittal. All of this leads to a very manual process for data entry into a utilization review system. But this is changing with new UR platforms that combine optical character recognition tools and automated intelligence, or AI. The faster and more effectively that requests can be submitted for review, the sooner claimants can receive appropriate care. The next step that is ideal for automation is the application of the appropriate evidence-based medical guideline. This includes identifying the correct criteria set, as well as the correct guideline itself. The hallmark of a good utilization review program is consistency. This includes consistency in meeting turnaround times, consistency in applying guidelines, and consistency in outcomes. Rules-based technology increases guideline accuracy. In situations where an exact match cannot be found, algorithms can serve up its best matches. Automation can also relieve delays when treatment request is denied. Instead of waiting for the provider to submit an appeal, the non-certified case can be instantly routed to a peer reviewer for assessment. The dissemination of the determination is critical to communication and essential for timely management of the referral. Automating distribution is a time saver for all levels of the case. However, the biggest jump in value is achieved by tightly integrating utilization review with medical bill review. Today, the workers' compensation industry relies on claims examiners or bill review auditors to make a visual comparison of the approved or denied treatment to actual care rendered. The flaws in this approach are obvious, and a more intelligent approach is through automation. So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Floyd Scarin Minukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.